This is Parsha Panorama, and this week's Parsha is Parsha's Korach, here at the database with Rabbi Yoshua Eisenberg. And Parsha's Korach is certainly an interesting Parsha, but not just because of the incredible story that takes place in it, though that alone would make this Parsha quite interesting. But in a very unique way, Parsha's Korach is quite concentrated and a self-contained Parsha in its own right. And it is not because the story takes up the entire Parsha, because in fact it doesn't. The story of Korach's rebellion itself only fills up a couple of alios, but all of the subsequent topics that follow all relate to the same theme, which we're going to identify very soon, and they all reaffirm what is, apparent, what is evidently um, reaffirmed in the story. What emerges from the story of Korach's rebellion is going to be what carries us through to the end of the Parsha, and it's going to be in such a clear way, the heavy lifting that we normally do a Parsha panorama like we had last week in Parsha Shalach is not going to be as much. Um, I would say, in fact, the, the lifting is much lighter. Right, we, we, knew, we knew that last week in Parsha Shalach, what we spent a lot of time talking about was how it was clear that the beginning of the Parsha and the end of the Parsha were connected, right? That the, that the end of the Parsha, the end of Shlach, really announces itself when the Chumash has textual parallels to the story of the Meraglim in the Parsha of Tzitzis. Right? Losa suru achre levavchem is the, is the most obvious parallel to lasura sa'aretz, to spy out the land. And what we had to work on was all the topics in between. How do they relate to Parsha Shlach? How do they reaffirm, reinforce the messages of Shlach and, and what we saw in the story of the Meraglim? In Parsha's Korach, it's much more obvious. Again, the story and the Parsha at large is quite self-contained. And that's despite the fact that, once again, on the one hand, the beginning of the Parsha, you have the story of Korach's rebellion. The rest of the Parsha is mostly... Um, um, aftermath of the story or segments, paragraphs that discuss various halachos. And we've had parashas like that that are split between narrative and, and mitzvos. We had that in Baha'aloscha, we had it in Shalach. It comes up in various parashas. But here, it's very, very clear why each topic that's in Parshas Korach is in fact in Parshas Korach. And in that way, you know, um, it's going to be a breeze of a Parsha panorama. But what we really have to focus on, um, and what we're going to give a lot of our attention to, is the placement of Parshas Korach. Now, you can say very simply, okay, this is where the story happened. But what you have to address is, if you understand what Korach's rebellion is about, then you have to be bothered by the question of why Korach waited until now to launch his campaign. If it was a question of who gets to be the Kohen, and why Levi doesn't get this much, and why Korach doesn't get that much, all of these things were already pre-established in Sefer Shmos, right? Parshas Kisisa at the latest. We had a little bit of it in the beginning of Parshas Bamidbar, and we know that Parshas Bamidbar already left chronological order, and so that's what the Ibn Ezra is actually going to go with. The Ibn Ezra is of the opinion that this story does not belong here. Now, the Ibn Ezra is not the only opinion out there. There's a, a Ramban that we know who almost always will assume that we are going in chronological order. He will not invoke the principle from Chazal, the exceptional rule of Ein Muktim Mukhar It's an exceptional rule because it's really an exception to the rule. Ein Muktim Mukhar which normally we understand to mean that the Torah is not bound by chronology. However, the Ramban says that's true except for when it's not true. 
<laughs> in other words, most of the time, says the Ramban, the, the, the Chumash is in order. And there are only, you know, only when it's absolutely obvious um, from an explicit Pasuk that says this is not in order, like we had at the beginning of a Midbar, then you don't say that. So the Ramban assumes that the story is here chronologically, that this is where it happened. So I'm going to make an argument for both Ramban and Ibn Ezra, whichever opinion you favor. You want to assume that, you know, just like Ibn Ezra is saying, that this Parsha belongs somewhere in Sefer Shemos, or maybe at the beginning of Bamidbar, when we're talking about the establishment of the boundaries of Kahuna, Levia, who's a Kohen, who's a Levi, how do you qualify? The Ibn Ezra says it belongs back there somewhere. And you, but you have to ask the question for Ibn Ezra, then why is the story recorded here? And even if you're Ramban, who says, ah, the story is recorded here because it happened here, what you have to address is, okay, well, why did the story happen only now? Why did Karach only launch his campaign right now, considering that all these things were pre-established earlier? Because according to the Ramban, this is happening right here. And so the question is a question according to both opinions. If you're the Ibn Ezra, why is the story only put here? And if you're the Ramban, right, so, right, because, again, if you're Ibn Ezra, this story belongs somewhere in Sefer Shemos. And if you're Ramban, so, Korach, why are you only acting now? So that's the question that we have to address. Either the timing of Korach's campaign or the placement of Korach's campaign, I'm going to make, hopefully, a compelling argument for both. So, and the, the main thing I'll, I'll say right now is that um, I'm compelled by the opinion of the Ramban that the story's here because it happened here. But what I'm hopefully going to demonstrate and uncover is the brilliance of Korach's timing according to this opinion that this is in fact where it happened. But even if you don't want to go with a, su- a suggestion that, that it happens right here where it's recorded... I will still hopefully demonstrate that this is a great placement for the story. It's not just another story of an unfortunate event that takes place in Sefer by Midbar, but in a certain sense, this is the climax of Sefer by Midbar. If you think back to the early uh, phases of Sefer by Midbar Parsha Panorama, where we acknowledged that the beginning of Bamidbar is very different from the middle and end of Bamidbar. The beginning of Bamidbar is about numbers, and it's about formation, and it's about the blueprints, and it's about positions, right? And it's, it's just lists. All of a sudden, you get a bunch of crazy stories, like really crazy stories from Bahalos Khanan. So you might have argued that Shalach, in a certain sense, is the climax, a painful climax um, indeed, but Korach, I will argue, is really where we see Bamidbar unraveling, um, not just, you know, like where things start to go wrong. Maybe the unraveling really begins in Baha'u'llah, but Korach is where it unravels to the point that we need to start um, sewing the fabric back up again, because that's, this is where it really completely untangles, or maybe tangles up. But the point is that even though the worst to our mind or the greatest fall to our mind is in this Parsha Shalach, Korach is where we need to pick things back up all over again. And we'll see why that is and how that is. 
So before we go to the components of the Parsha and try to understand why each component of the Parsha in Parsha's Korach indeed belongs here, let's talk a little bit about the global aspect of Parsha's Korach. So what is Korach really a Parsha about? If you knew no other topics in the Parsha, even if we didn't spend almost 10 minutes talking about Korach's rebellion, you would have been able to tell me that Korach is about Korach's rebellion. It's about Korach, Korach's rebellion, his death, all of that you would have known. How many people, how many of the listeners know about the other topics that come up in the Parsha? As I mentioned, Parsha's Korach is a very self-contained Parsha, and it could be for this reason there's not much to be bothered by in the rest of the Parsha, but it pays to know how does the rest of the Parsha um, continue to reinforce everything that happened before. What, in fact, are those topics? So before I get to them, um, I'll just mention that as, as, I, as I said that, Parsha's Korach is a Parsha that is all just reaffirming the beginning of the Parsha. So if we know what the beginning of the Parsha is about, we will have a breeze moving through the rest of it. So Korach's rebellion and the aftermath is mainly what Korach is about. But what's the point of all of it? The whole point of the Parsha is to reaffirm Moshe and Aaron's chosenness and to reestablish the boundaries that were blurred by Korach. That's what the entire Parsha is about. And if you keep that in mind, you will have no problem with any of the topics that appear right after. So let's go through those topics. I have um, six um, items on my list of what happens in the Parsha. The first section is devoted to Korach's rebellion. We learn the top names in his campaign. There's obviously Korach, there's Dasan, Aviram, and Ben Peles. And really, i got to give honorary mention to the question that you have to ask when you open up the Parsha, you open up the Chumash to Parsha's Korach, you can't get off of the first Pasuk, and not even that, you can't get off of the first word without asking the question. Vayikach Korach and Korach took. The Chumash is not clear at all about what he took, and there's a lot written on this one word, Vayikach, and he took, my Rashi tells us already on that, oh, Rashi says, look in the Midrashim, there's so many things in the Midrashim on this, and he's right. And not just the Midrashim, but the Mepharshim. So much trying to explain what Karach took. Maybe if we have time, we'll get to it, um, but we might not. But I, I encourage you to look at the Mepharshim and the Midrashim on that word. So we have Korach, Dasan Aviram, Oun Ben Peles. Oun Ben Peles is his own enigma because he's mentioned just in this part of the story and we never see his name again. Right, the Gemara and Sanhedrin on Kuftes 109 um, has a whole backstory to explain what happened to Oun Ben Peles. Right, was he just there the whole time? Did he disappear? And it seems that he disappeared. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a story that I, that I have written my own material on so if you want, you can reach out to me at the database at gmail.com. That's the data, then base, B-E-I-S at gmail.com if you want to continue the conversation or if you want to just give a sponsorship to support the Harbasas Torah or any comments, questions, suggestions, recommendations, anything, please just reach out to me there. But um, the question of Own Ben Palace, which is a great topic in its own right, not sure we're going to get to it today. Uh, but um, Own Ben Palace, now you see him, now you don't. Um, and in the story, we get Moshe Rabbeinu's response, the negotiations that Moshe tries to make with them, the challenge where he says, everyone, every one of you should come tomorrow, take a fire pan, try to offer a carbon, see whose fire is going to be accepted. The one whose fire is accepted is going to be the chosen one. Clearly, there are shades of the Nadav and Avihu story. Mepharshim highlight this. Rashi highlights this. Moshe Rabbeinu had to have this in mind when he issued the challenge. Why Korach and his Ada would 
um, go at it. Knowing what happened to Nadav and Avihu is, um, is really also an enigma. I, I heard a shear addressing that question as well. Again, you know where to find me if you want to hear more on any of these things. And then, of course, we get to the incredible deaths of Karachva Adaso. The 250 princes, the Nesim, the Gedolim who endorsed Korach, Tragically, they died with their fire pans, similar to Nadav and Avihu. Korach, Dasan Aviram, and their families, with the exception of those of Korach's children who did not die, as the Pasuk and Pashas Pinchas tells us, uh, tells us uh, but all of the Korach's family otherwise, and Dasan and Aviram, and their families, they um, die in the pit of destruction, the pit of despair, with all of their possessions. And that's the story of Korach's rebellion. But there's more to the Parsha. So in section 2, I titled that the memorial on the Mizbeach. Moshe Rabbeinu commands that the fire pans be salvaged because apparently they maintained, they earned and maintained the status of Kedusha by the very dint of the fact that they were offered as Karbanos. So the, um, the, um, the, the fire would be discarded and the fire pans would be saved and actually used as a coating for the Mizbeach. The, the, Mizbeach, would be co- um, the Mizbeach would be coated with the pans and it would be an eternal reminder of what Korach's assembly did. What's interesting is that you would think that we would not want to put this anywhere near the Mizbeach, but apparently this somehow reaffirms the mistake that Korach and his assembly made. Then in section 3, we have an interesting plague. All right? um, so many more than just 253 people died in the Parsha. Um, we, um, you know, in, in the assembly, that's how many people died. If you count Karach Dasanaviram and the other family members, um, it would be more than 253, presumably. But many more people die just because of their very unfavorable response. They didn't, a Klaistrel, a big portion of them anyway, were unhappy to see that Karach and so many others died. And they accused Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron, saying, Hamitemes Amashem, you have killed the people of Hashem. What an incredible allegation, right? It's kind of like, um, you know, blaming the judge and the executioner for executing the criminal, right? Look, you're killing more people. It's a crazy thought, but this is what they accuse them of. And who, who comes to the rescue but Aaron Cohen with a ketores, and he saves the Bnei Yisrael. So many of them died, but many of them were saved because of this ketores, and the ketores is offered, and it stops the plague in its tracks, very incredible story also in its own right, but this is all part of the aftermath of Korach's rebellion. And, you know, if we have time, we'll have to come back to the story because the Midrashim that Rashi brings are so enlightening about, um, about life in general, but also how to understand this part of the story, this part of the Parsha, how it really reaffirms and reinforces and how it puts back together all of the qualms and doubts you might have had if you were living in those times and even afterwards, there's so much to be said about this story. Um, But anyway, that's what I have as section three. Section four, we have another trial reaffirming Aaron's chosenness. If Korach um, and his assembly's deaths was not enough, and you can make the argument that, yeah, the, that, that, that trial just proved that Korach and his assembly weren't worthy. But how do we know that Aaron is? How do we know that Moshe Rabbeinu is not really just engaging in nepotism and, and hoarding all the glory for himself and his family? So they have a new trial involving the staffs, right? Um, each, each tribe has a representative uh, with a staff. 
our own staff is the one that rises and sprouts flowers and almonds, demonstrating that he was the chosen one. You know, he takes a, you know, take a wand and turn it into flower, make a flower pop out of it. The oldest trick in the book, as Rabbi Gladstein put it, um, on Torah anytime. But it's, it's interesting why this story was needed, because I think at this point you would stop messing with Moshe and Aaron. No one would question them anymore. And yet at this point, we have a trial that reaffirms. And maybe part of what's trying to be um, taught and imparted and communicated is the fact that we could have done a trial to just demonstrate Aaron's chosenness without anybody dying. You know, it didn't have to be that way. But now we have a more pleasant sign um, that, that, that kind of um, demonstrates Aaron's chosenness, and it never had to be something that led to anyone's death had only people approached the matter the right way. Okay, but that's the story of our own staff. Then we have a very awkward story of more lamenting and complaining. Klai Israel saying, we're going to die. How can anyone approach the Mizbeach? How can anyone approach the Avodah? How can we engage with Hashem? What's interesting is after this complaint, unlike their accusation of Moshe and Aaron earlier that warranted more deaths, this part of the story did not warrant a plague. No one died at this part of the story. The only thing that happened after this particular complaint was Hashem commanding Moshe Rabbeinu to reinforce the boundaries, saying what the role of the Kohen is, what the role of the Levi is, who stands where, who can't stand there, Azar who enters is going to die. And that's the only response. We have another round of what looks like complaining, however, not followed by a plague, but followed by a reestablishing of boundaries. Then finally, the Parsha closes out with a section devoted to Matanos Kahuna Vilavia, the gifts of the Kohanim and the Leviyim. But not just any gifts, not just a statement that, oh, the Kohanim gets this, the Levi gets this, but there's an emphasis on Matanos, or the, the, or the particular Matanos of Meiser Rishon and Trumas Meiser. Now, even if you're not an expert in these topics, very, very simply, Meiser Rishon is the portion that the Levi gets. And we say, good, Levi, you get a portion. If you're a member of Levi, then, then you're entitled to something, right? Um, to, high, to, to repeat in Moshe's own words, but Moshe Rabbeinu tried to argue with Korach, Rav Lechem B'nei Levi, Levi, you got a great deal, you get stuff. However, nonetheless, you're indeed right that Levi doesn't get everything. Levi has to separate Trumas Meister. Even when the Levi receives Meisterishon, he has to still give from that a Truma to the Kohen. And that's how the Parsha closes out, saying, yes, in fact, there is a difference between Kohen and Levi. And I don't care if you don't like it, that's what the Torah says. Why are all these topics here? Again, very clear, very obvious. We're trying to reaffirm the chosenness of the chosen individuals and to reestablish the boundaries. That's what the Parsha is about. Kohen stands here, Levi stands here, Levi gets this, Kohen gets that, Azar has to stay back, and that's it. And of course, Aaron is the Kohen Gadol, Moshe Rabbeinu is the Nasi Israel, he's in charge, and that's it. That's what the Parsha is a Parsha about. People that decided that they're going to challenge Moshe and Aaron and challenge the entire system, right? You're going to try to, um, to argue that Moshe Rabbeinu is an elitist and he is, he is someone who is engaging in the crime of nepotism. And this is what happens. We, we, we get educated and learn who, um, who's in charge and why they're in charge, who's chosen and why, in fact, they were chosen. That's what the Parsha is a Parsha about. We could understand it. 
What we now have to address is the timing or the placement. Again, if you're the Ramban, we have to address the timing. If you're the Ibn Ezra, we have to address the placement. So what, in fact, is this Parsha, Parsha about? Let's, let's go with the Ibn Ezra for now. Let's assume the Parsha did not take place right now. But again, I'm going to argue with what I think is a compelling argument, Leonidas Daiti, to not just defend the Ramban, but to demonstrate how important the timing was. But before we get there, let's just take it back a step. Get the larger Parsha panoramic view. What's happening in Parsha's Korach? What is Korach to the entirety of Sefer B'midbar? If not, what I'm going to argue now is that it's the, the, the greatest climax of the Parsha in a certain sense. And that is because what was B'midbar? We noticed that B'midbar, even again in the beginning, Ramban, even though he's not going to say it now, but he did admit it then, that B'midbar is not in order. At least the beginning of B'midbar is not in order. B'midbar starts with a very new perspective, a very new viewpoint. It's the viewpoint of the camp of Klal Yisrael. Without concern of what part of the travel it was, what year in their journey out, you know, they're out from Egypt and on the way to Eretz Yisrael, right, whatever point in the travel it was, the focus is on the camp. The focus is on the tribes. The focus, as we said, is on the numbers, the list, the formation, the positions, the boundaries. That's what Bamidbar is about. And who were these boundaries for? They're for everybody. Each person has their own spot that they have to stand in. And the argument of, you know, or I should say the, the warning that a czar who enters is going to die, that's something that although you might think is reserved for a Ben Yisrael, if you look, back in Parsha's Bemidbar, we might have mentioned this in Parsha Panorama earlier, there is a Rashi that says that, yeah, if you, if you step out of line, you know, you, you risk there being a ketzef against the entire nation. A ketzef is a divine wrath, a fiery plague of some sort. Don't mess with the boundaries. Don't, don't, don't step out of line. You might have argued that who are we worried about? Maybe we're worried about some troublemaker from Shevet Dun or some elitist from Shevet Ephraim or Menashe. Who knows? But, in fact, the culprit was someone from Shevet Levi. Rashi says this in the Midbar. Rashi says, like what happens in the time of Korach. Korach is the Levi that steps out of line. He is already up there. He wasn't all the way up there, but he was pretty up there. And he stepped out of line. The Parsha, or really the Sefer, is a book about order. It's a book about numbers. It's a book about boundaries. And we see from Baha'u'llah's Chanan so many different forms of people overstepping their bounds. But the height of it is when one man who's already quite up there, but he says, I got to get more. And he has this campaign against Moshe Rabbeinu saying, I'm going for the top dog. And he doesn't just challenge for one position, but he literally challenges for every possible form of authority you can have. Malchus, Nesias, Kahuna. He's going for it all and trying to take down the entire system because that's really the argument that he makes, that the entire system is flawed. And sometimes you find this, you know, with, uh, with communist elitists, right? There, there are many different uh, stories 
that demonstrate this very different real face examples of this. But the idea is when Karach makes the argument of Kulam Kedoshim, Kulani Kedoshim, we're all holy, what he's saying is, yeah, we should all be equal. Right? But what he means is we should all be equal except for me. I should be above everyone else. Right? It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, the, you know, the communist elitists, they want everyone to be uh, under a certain um, set of rules. And the, you know, and the, but they'll be on top and they'll get everything else. And that's really what Karach wanted. Karach made an argument, a communal argument, and it was really supposed to eclipse the agenda of the elitism that he was going for in his own right. Even if we can make the argument that Korach, on some level, was a Talmud Chacham, a Gadol in his own right, but at the very end, the Vayikach Korach mentality, so the Kedushas Levi actually talks about this, the Vayikach Korach demonstrates a lack of Lishma, a lack of Shlemus in his Kavana, that he was in it for himself. He wasn't just, you know, he, he wasn't just um, in it because he wanted to serve Hashem, but he wanted to get what he, he could get out of it. Contrast that from Moshe Rabbeinu, who never wanted the job in the first place. Right? So, we can understand why this parsha about the, tri- the, the attempt to tear down the system, the attempt to step out of line, to ruin the boundaries. So, that's, that's what the, the book of Bamidbar is about. And this is just where it reaches its peak. But let's talk about the timing. Let's talk about the Ramban. This story is right here where it belongs. Well, is it right here where it belongs? Well, tell me, Korach, why'd you wait so long? Right? Because we know from Sefer Shmos already. We know from the time of the Cheta Egel. We know that the Levim were entitled to a special portion. And then, oh, um, you know, we were, we're going to establish the, uh, the, the tribal leaders. Okay, happens at the beginning of Bamidbar. But a lot has happened since Shmos. A lot has happened since the beginning of Bamidbar. We're on our way. We've been on our way for a while. Now what? Right? All, all, all of a sudden, Karach wakes up. Well, when exactly does Karach wake up, if this is when it's happening? What woke Karach up? Karach must have been bothered by this for a while. He, he didn't speak up till now. He didn't launch his campaign till now. So what, what had changed? And the argument I want to make is that Korach's ears perked up at the moment in, in, in Parsha Shalach when, when Klai Israel made this statement and suggested the notion of Nitnu Rosh Vineshiva Mitzrayimah. Let's appoint a new leader. We'll go back to Egypt. Now, I'm not going to suggest that that was what Korach intended to do. In fact, I don't think Korach intended to do that at all. But once Korach realized that the authority of Moshe Rabbeinu was being challenged... This is when he went in for the kill. And how do we know this? We know this from his corrupt media, Dosan and Aviram, who we argued really had no reason to be here. The Bnei Ruvain had nothing to gain here. They, they might have thought they would have had something to gain, but they really weren't going to win anything. They were just the media. They were just the rally. And what did they say? The argument they make has nothing to do with who should be calling. They just say that... Moshe Rabbeinu, you took us from the land flowing with milk and honey. You didn't bring us to the land flowing with milk and honey, you took us from there. What does that have to do with anything? So therefore, our own shouldn't be the Kohen? Like, what's that got to do with uh, the price of tea in China? As I think they say. 
um, or the, the Jewish version is Mayin Shemitah which we spoke about, Parshas Bahar. But bringing it back here, what does that have to do with anything? But what's their point? Their point is they are actually responding to the Chetam Miraglim, the tragedy of Moshe. Look, look where you got us. The point is you're clearly not meant to be in charge. And what we find very interestingly is Dustin and Aviram, they say something which in context sounds very weird. They say, lo na'aleh. Not only do they say, lo na'aleh, we will not go up, but they say it twice. If you think back to the story of the Miraglim, these words are very significant because they seem to be a counter, a response to the argument made by none other than Khalif bin Yafuna, who said, Alona Allah, we will surely go up. The double Lashna, we will go up. To counter the double Lashna, we will go up. Dustin and Aviram are saying, we will not go up. Again, which in context here does not seem to make that much sense. But when we consider the opportunism, when we consider the timing of these words, what they are trying to explain is that we have nothing left to lose anymore. And we, you know, we've had it. We've had it with this system. We've had it with this leadership. We've had it with, with, with this leader. And that's what's happening here. Korach is now standing up, addressing the thing that has always bothered him, but now with a new argument. And that is Nitnu Rosh. Let's appoint a new leader. And then Dustin Aviram doing all the dirty work, saying... Yeah, you know how things were so good in Mitzrayim, and now, um, you know, now we're out here. And Korach never said what he was going to do. He never made any campaign promises. But there was a common enemy. Dasan Aviram, Korach, they all had a common enemy. The common enemy is Moshe Rabbeinu. Thus is the placement of Korach's campaign. He uses a popular pretext. His media uses a popular pretext, taking the one tragedy that is on everyone's mind. Right, you know, it's kind of like uh, taking a um, taking a, a real life tragedy, like a COVID pandemic, and saying, "Look, look at this tragedy that happened, and who's the leader of it all?" And there, there's your argument, you know. And and the question is, who? Well, who did the chetamaraglim? Did, did was Moshe involved in it? You could say, yeah, he was involved. Who did it though? Klal Yisrael did it. Sometimes there are tragedies that are just beyond people's power. Sometimes there are multiple people at fault. But take a popular pretext, take something that's bothering everybody, and just use that as your, as your campaign platform. Use that as your argument. That's exactly what Karach does right here in our Parsha. So now we understand what's happening in our Parsha. We had a Parsha where, you know, we had, we had a Sefer, which emphasized the roles of boundaries and the system, how everything ought to work perfectly, right? In Hashem's perfect world, we know, going all the way back, that Hashem created a perfect world with the intention of giving the ultimate good to mankind, but once generations ruined it, Hashem isolated one nation, and hopefully that one nation would pick up the scraps, and we, you know, we went through some bumps in the road, but ultimately we, we made it out, we became the Shiftei Ka, Hashem's chosen nation, uh, we, 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 we went through our own tragedies, but now we're on our way back. We're on our way into Eretz Yisrael. Nothing can go wrong except everything. And that's what happens in our Sefer. And now, once things have gone so bad, where the next generation hopefully will be able to get in, we have some troublemakers in this generation who are still not letting go. And that's what the Parsha is a Parsha about. So now let's just address some of the other topics that we said we would. 
I want to focus on the story of the plague that followed the accusation of Hamitem Esam Hashem. The people said, once Korach and his assembly died, Moshe and Aaron, you are killing Hashem's people. And then Aaron offers a Keturus, and then suddenly the plague stops. Why is this important? This is important in light of um, two Midrashim. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to splice the Midrashim just for the purpose of convenience. But there are two things that are being addressed here. One is a focus on the Ketoros, and one is the focus on Moshe and Aaron. You want to see this Midrashim inside? Look in Rashi. It's very, very simple Rashi. Um, it's, 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 uh, it's not a short Rashi, but Rashi paints the picture for us beautifully. And what does he present? He presents two arguments, or he focuses on two arguments that the Bnei Israel made. One we only find in the Midrash, though we find it a little bit later in the Parsha as well. And one we find in, in, the, in, the, in the Psukim explicitly. The first is the accusation against Moshe and Aaron, you killed Hashem's people. You guys are the killers. Okay? So basically he takes the leaders, the people who are in charge, the, 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 the people who are hopefully the inspiring uh, protectors of Kala Yisrael, and they, they, they're the culprits now. And defending all the criminals. That's the first part. And the second part is Rashi says that they, uh, they accused the Ketores of all things. They said the Ketores is a Sam Hamavis. It's a, it's a poison. And what happens in the story? So, the, so we know Aaron comes, takes the Ketores, and he saves everybody. So Rashi says that, well, on the one hand, Aaron came and demonstrated that you think the Ketores is a Sam Hamavis? I'll prove to you that it's an Otsar Magefa. It's a plague stopper. People are dying. What's going to save them? The Ketores. Oh, okay. So then, I, you know, I thought the Ketores was a killer. Now I see it's a savior. So w- w- which one is it? The answer is doing the wrong thing makes you die, even if the Ketores is there. But the Ketores in the right hands can save people. I.e., doing the wrong thing will kill you. Doing the right thing will save you. How about Moshe and Aaron? Who, are they the killers? Who's the killer? So the Midrash paints a picture of, of Arhon confronting none other than the Malacham Aves. And he confronts the Malacham Aves and he says, Hey, Malacham Aves, you stop that. You stop killing those people. The Malacham Aves says, Bug off. Hashem told me to kill these people. And what does Aaron say? Aaron says, Yeah, but Moshe told me to stop you. And did you know that Moshe does not say anything on his own? Anything that Moshe Rabbeinu says came from Hashem directly. And so the Malachim says, oh yeah? And then Aaron says, yeah, I'll show you. And he grabs the Malachim and they speak to Moshe and Hashem. And Hashem says, yeah, Taka, you're right. And, then, uh, and so then the, the Malachim says, okay, okay, you know, you, you, if you're twisting my arm, I'll stop. And he doesn't kill anybody. What's the point of this Midrash? The Midrash is, is directly attacking the argument of Hamitem Esam Hashem. What's happening in this story? Aaron goes toe-to-toe with death himself and, and stops him when he's trying to kill other people, and Aaron and Moshe, the individuals who are just accused of killing Hashem's people, and they're the ones, you know, um, Moshe's command and Aaron's um, uh, scuffle with the Malachamaves is what stops the Magefa. They stop the plague head on. It's not the Ketores. Stop blaming the Ketores. Stop blaming Moshe and Aaron. People should just do the right thing. Do what you're supposed to do, and you're not going to die. The people complain at the end of the Parsha. After Aaron's you know, reaffirmed as, as, the, as the Kohen Gadol. And they say, oh no, we're going to die. What are we going to do? Like anyone who gets close to Mizbeach is going to die. At that point in the Parsha, Hashem doesn't plague anybody. And why? 
mistama, it's because they're not really complaining as much as they are lamenting. They're not, you know, they're, they're, they're not arguing that the system be teared down, but they're just bemoaning the fact that they don't know what to do. Because at this point, they see so many people die. They see some people not dying. So, what, like, what's the rule? What's the exception? Where, where, where do they belong? What, what's their role in everything? And so at that point, that instead of killing everybody, Hashem says, just look at the boundary line. I'm painting it for you right here. Look at the tape. Look at the, look at the do not cross. And that's it. You don't have to cry. You don't have to complain. You don't have to say, oh, you know, this religion is too hard for us. Stop hating on the game. Stop hating the players. Address yourself. Look into yourself and see what the problem is. This is a theme that's going to come up again in Parshas Chukas. And when we get to Parshas Chukas, we're going to see exactly how important Parshas Karach is. Because Parshas Chukas next week is going to be a Parsha with a lot of seemingly disjointed parts. There's a lot in Parshas Chukas, a lot of different stories that, again, they seem disconnected. But if you consider how Shlach is almost like a tearing down of everything, and Korach even more so, between Shlach, Korach, we're going to see unfolding a reboot. We're going to see a re-establishment of everything. Things are going to be picked up and put back together, and it's going to help us understand. When we understand where Klal was before they ruined things and messed things up, and where they are now, at the end of Shlach and Korach, if we can appreciate what has to be done to pick up the scraps, we'll be able to understand Parshas Chukas much better. And I assure you, next week it's going to be a very enlightening discussion here at Parsha Panorama. But that takes us through Korach for now. And I thank you for joining us here at Parsha Panorama. I wish you an absolutely wonderful Shabbos. And thank you for joining us here at the database.